You're listening to Time in the Word. We learn by example. We copy things that we see. This is also true for developing spiritually. We call this biblical principle modeling. Paul often gave examples to illustrate the principles that he had imparted. In today's text, Paul exhorts us to live in holiness and in harmony as we serve one another in love. He concludes the exhortation by relating walking in the Spirit to how we treat one another. In the first five verses of chapter 6, he gives an example of serving one another in love, particularly as we deal with sin within the body of Christ. In verses 1-2, through Paul begins with an exhortation on how sin should be handled in the body of Christ. Paul's exhortation is an example for implementing his concluding exhortation in chapter 5, verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Having shown us the practical example of walking in the Spirit and not challenging one another in jealousy and pride, in verses 3 through 5, Paul gives the antidote to selfish ambition. Paul warns of the danger of self-deceit. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let us listen as Dr. Gonzalez provides an exposition of Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. As you read through Paul's epistles, you, you find that Paul often gave examples to illustrate the principles that he had inculcated or imparted as he went from church to church teaching or as he wrote his epistles. In this section, verses 1 through 5, he exhorts us to live in holiness and in harmony as we serve one another in love. And he concludes the exhortation by relating walking in the Spirit, which is what we were covering the last time we were looking at Galatians, and how we treat one another. So in the first five verses of chapter 6, he gives an example of serving one another in love, particularly as we deal with sin in the body. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he could take pride in himself without comparing himself to someone else, for each one should carry his own load. So Paul begins with an exhortation on how sin should be handled in the body of Christ. Again, look at verses 1 and 2. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Paul's exhortation is an example of implementing his concluding exhortation in chapter 5, verse 26, which says, Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Now he opens here with the word brothers. Let me just say this, that word brothers encompasses both men and women, and it assumes membership in the local body of believers in a church, in a fellowship. And the verb is caught suggests one suddenly falling into sin 
but would also apply to anyone within the body of Christ who falls into a grievous sin or into the practice of sin. Obviously, Paul is not talking about the daily sins, and sin is sin. We understand that. All sin requires us to to seek the Lord's forgiveness and to repent of. But we also understand that there are those daily sins that are, relatively speaking, minor and covered by love. Those aren't the ones he has in mind here in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. His language in these two verses suggests a more sudden fall into a serious sin or the practice of a specific sin. It might be something that happens publicly and needs to be addressed immediately, or it may be something that may be addressed privately, either because it was committed in private or in order not to shame the individual who has committed the sin. The circumstances will dictate that. Paul says it is the responsibility, now listen, it is the responsibility of spiritual persons to restore that individual. The question becomes, who is spiritual? So who of us have that responsibility right now? Well, let's define spiritual. If you look at chapter 5, this is where we concluded last time, and look at verse 25, he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Who does he mean by the term, you who are spiritual? He refers to those who are seeking to walk by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, and cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. If you're an individual who is doing that, then you are one of those who has the responsibility to restore a sinning brother to fellowship with the Lord and with, with the body. He's not talking about, and this is how we tend to think about these things, and this is the danger of our thinking. He's not referring to some super spiritual individual in the body who is responsible for that. He's talking about anybody who seeks to live his life for the glory of God. If that defines you, guess what? You are now responsible for making sure that a sinning brother or sister is restored. Notice, Paul says that we will not ignore a situation when we see someone caught or overtaken by a sin. And again, this indicates that that the sinful behavior is a pattern and a particular uh, sin has in a sense, gotten the upper hand with this person. That's what that caught or overtaken means. It is a habit of sinful behavior that the person will not be able to overcome. This is where the responsibility of the mature believer, the spiritual believer comes in. It is is a habit of a sinful behavior that the person will not be able to overcome without help and outside intervention. And that's our responsibility, to be the help and the outside intervention to restore that person once again. What we need to do is we need to cease from criticizing, judging, and we need to cease from being afraid of sometimes confronting a brother or a sister who needs to be confronted because of sin. Thus, the spiritual individual is to restore the one who has fallen. Again, look at our aim. It's very simple. Verse 1, to restore him what? Gently. Restore here was a term used for setting a dislocated bone back into place. For those of you who have ever dislocated a bone and have had to have somebody put it back in place, you know that's a very painful thing to experience. But it is a 
healing pain, isn't it? It restores the bone back to where it should be in its relationship to other body parts. But in order to, for that to happen, someone has to take that bone and put it back in its place. And it's an often a painful experience for both. For the one doing it, as he's watching the person who's having it done, scream out of pain because of what is being done. This is what the term restore means. It's, it's the placing uh, back of something to its natural place. Very painful, but again, it's a healing pain. And it means that we confront even when that will be painful. And our com- confronting must have as its aim to prompt a change in life or a change in in heart. Now Paul says this gentleness will come if you look again verse verse 1 watch yourself or you also may be tempted. Now this is difficult, but it's practical advice. Why does he say that? Well, we won't be able to winsomely confront someone if we think we are not capable of similar or equal sin. There's a danger in thinking that you're exempt from the sin your brother or sister has been overtaken by. If we do not feel, or if we do feel that we're above the person, our air of superiority will come through and will destroy rather than restore. So Paul gives us some very difficult but very practical advice. Beware. And he says, those who are spiritual do not approach a believer in an arrogant, in a challenging manner. They are to come humbly with gentleness is the idea. They approach them as a fellow sinner who has been saved by grace and who truly cares for them. In fact, if we have not yet fallen or have not yet found ourselves in in the circumstances of the individual whom Paul is referring to here as having been overtaken by sin, then it is only by God's grace that we have not fallen into such sin. The very temptation that suddenly took this believer by surprise could take us by surprise is the point. Paul is trying to make here. None of us are exempt from what our fellow brothers or sisters may be experiencing or going through at this particular point. So we humbly, we live humbly aware of our own need. What Paul is uh, saying here is that none of us should attempt to restore another in a self-righteous or censorous attitude, but with humility, understanding that we ourselves are could be overtaken, understanding that we ourselves came from the same place, that we ourselves have experienced the grace of God, and it is by His grace that we may be in a position to be able to restore such a sinner back to where they should be. So, And Paul gives us the ground of this duty in verse 2. Notice what he says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of of Christ. And he has in mind Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 which says, love your neighbors as yourself. Paul says that the Old Testament law is the law of Christ. We reprove our neighbor because we love our neighbor. We therefore have this duty as Christians to one another. It is much easier And we all know this to be a fact because we've all been guilty of this. It is much easier to gossip than to admonish and exhort. But true love enables us to labor for restoration. And then in verses 3 through 5, we find the antidote. Having already shown us the practical example of walking in the Spirit and not challenging one another in jealousy and pride, Paul gives us the antidote of self 
ambition in verses 3 through 5. Listen to what he says. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to someone else, for each one should carry his own load. What is Paul warning us against here? Self-deception. He's warning us against self-deception. Listen to what he says. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, what? He deceives himself. Since it is difficult to approach a believer with the proper attitude, Paul then gives us the antidote. And here's the antidote. Avoid self-deception of thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. If you think that you are superior in your gifts, in your moral excellence, in your insights, then you will not approach your neighbor gently. There's a real danger here. And we've likely all to some extent, to some degree, experienced that as well in our own lives. The heart, the scripture says, is what? Deceitful. We often are blind to our own sins and deceived with respect to our own ability. Remember, we're told in Scripture that before we deal with the speck in somebody's eye, we ought to do what? Address the plank in our own eye. The problem is that we never deal with a plank because we don't think we have a plank. And we with the plank are the ones coming to the one with the speck and are trying to restore that brother. How does that work? So he, he tells us that we are to avoid self-deception. So what is the practical antidote of self-deception? Self-examination. Listen to what he says in verse 4. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to someone else. Before you come, in fact, a test of a spiritual person is that he is continually self-examining to ensure that he remains in a place where he can execute on the responsibility to come alongside a brother or sister to restore them if the need be. Paul calls us to the regular practice of self-examination. How, how well are we doing that today? How often do we, even before we approach the throne of grace, begin to think about where we are truly spiritually? How often do we pray for the Holy Spirit to bring to light those planks we refuse to deal with? The unexamined life is a fruitless life. It's a life of self-righteousness. And according to Paul, it's a deceived life. However, because we do this too, we must not examine our lives by others. Why? Listen, we're, we're, we still have that sinful nature, right? We will tend to look to those who we believe we're superior to spiritually. And that may be why we often don't deal with the planks in our eyes, because we always compare ourselves to somebody who is worse than we are. What's the standard by which we should self-examine ourselves? Right here. How do we measure up now? We ought to always be self-examining, but never by comparing ourselves to others, but by bringing ourselves to the Word of God and allowing the Word of God to expose everything that needs to be dealt with. We examine our lives by the standard of God's Word. And our response will be before God alone. And in verse 5, he says, For each one should carry his own load. Now, Paul seems to contradict himself. He said in verse 2, Carry each other's burdens. 
And now he says each one should carry his own load. Well, this is an apparent contradiction. It's not a contradiction. Paul is, in essence, borrowing from the style of Proverbs. And the contrast makes a lesson memorable. On the one hand, you have the law of Christ. And the law of Christ says that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. He calls you to enter into the sufferings and the weakness of another believer. That's what the law of Christ demands. On the other hand, the law of self-examination, which is what he's called us to do on a regular basis, the law of self-examination warns that you are to answer to God alone for your actions. You bear your own before him. So as you think about it from the law of Christ standpoint, you come alongside and you enter the sufferings and the weakness of the brother or sister you're looking to restore. On the other hand, you're responsible for your own actions and your own life before God and God alone. The boasting piece, he says in this verse, he says, without comparing someone else, then he can have pride in himself. There's a proper boasting, and that boasting is the boasting of a clear conscience before God. We each must seek to maintain a pure conscience. Now, how do we come to such a boasting? It's in Christ. We boast in Christ. We boast of our clear conscience before God. It is in grace, not in our works, that we boast. It is on the basis of daily confession of sin and assurance of pardon. By these means, we keep our conscience clean and pure. So if we boast, we must boast for the right reasons. But you who are spiritual, and you are the only one who can determine at this point whether you fall into that category, you have the responsibility to restore a sinning brother or sister. And if you're not spiritual, you have a problem. You should be. You should be keeping in step with the Spirit. You should be mortifying the deeds of the flesh and seeking to produce the fruit of the Spirit. 